We're going to read now the 140th Psalm. This is to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather together for war. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. Selah. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purposed to make my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. Selah. I said to the Lord, you are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted. Selah. As for the head of those who surround me, let their, the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits that they rise not up again. Let not a slanderer be established in the earth. Let evil hunt the violent men to overthrow him. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. All right, we're going to finish up chapter 2 of Exodus today. This is Exodus 2, verses 16 through 25. It's entitled, Seven Daughters Drawing from the Well. And I asked you all to uh, read those last week. I hope that you came up with some pictures of what this is uh, speaking about. If not, we'll get it to you. And uh, as I said, next week, I think, is just one of the, the, the most... This is leading up to where next week is going. And uh, we saw last week that it was picturing... Christ's rejection uh, by his people. And so obviously this must have something to do with the church age if it's following a pattern. And next week would obviously build upon that. So there you go. We got these these three stories before it goes back to Israel. And uh, it, it's most interesting how God takes these pictures of things and just gives us select words and then shows us what is coming in human history. All right. So uh, Exodus chapter 2, verses 16 through 25. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Reuel, their father, he said, how is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew water, uh, enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Curious stories seem to pop up among other curious stories. And today's verses show one of them, don't they? In a period which spans 40 years of Moses' life, just seven verses are given. After that, three more verses are provided to take us right back to the plight of the Israelites in the land of Egypt, ten verses in all. One has to ask, what is so important about these seven verses in comparison to all of the other things which must have happened to Moses during those 40 years? Why is this single event recorded? The answer is, as always, because God wants us to see pictures of other things in redemptive history and to understand that his plan is precise and pre-planned. And to me, that's the most comforting thing about knowing the Lord. If he has everything planned as to how it's going to come out, then he must know how things will turn out for me as well, because I'm a part of the greater plan. If his word says that because of Jesus, I'm included in the good things that are to come, then what an absolutely satisfying feeling that is. If we see our name listed in the will of a rich family member, it gives us something to look forward to with anticipation. Not anticipation that the person is going to die, but rather that death is inevitable that they're old and they're eventually going to die, and that we have an inheritance which will come from that inevitable situation. 
Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that in Christ we have an eternal inheritance in store for us. He goes on to say that we even have a guarantee of that inheritance, which is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It is the surest guarantee that could ever, ever, ever be given. Unlike an earthly inheritance, which would possibly be lost before we receive it, or which may never come to us personally because we get run over by a car first, nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from the inheritance that we have coming because of our faith in Jesus Christ. These stories, which show us pictures of God's plan, are specifically given to us. And they're so wonderful to understand because they remind us that the future is set, that we have a sure path to glory, and it's all because of the work of somebody else, because of Jesus Christ. What a great feeling that should leave us with. Our text verse today comes from John chapter 4, which is, if you know, the woman in the well passage. And uh, in the 13th and 14th verse, it says this. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Everlasting life. We can't even imagine what that's going to be like. Now we get old, we get tired, things are temporary, and more often than not, they bring us just as much pain as they do pleasure. We might enjoy our pets, but when they die, we suffer through the loss. We might have a car that we're absolutely crazy about, but when it gets a spot of rust or a dent, we tend to lose heart and we tend to get frustrated over it. Everything wears out. Everything runs down. Everything fades in the bright sun. But Jesus promises us a fountain of water that will refresh us for all eternity. This is offered to all those who call on him. It is he who waters the flock. A small picture of that is seen in today's verses. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have five thoughts for you today, and they're all short, but it's more than normal. The first is the Father's flock, verses 16 and 17. In the last short account, Moses set out to join with his Hebrew brethren and to deliver them from bondage going so far as to kill an Egyptian in order to rescue one of them. However, when he came to two others fighting the next day, they rejected his attempt to reconcile them, and they rejected his authority over them. And because of this, and because the word had gotten out that he had killed the Egyptian, he fled from the face of Pharaoh. The last verse we looked at said, But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. We saw that all of it pointed to the first advent of Christ and his appearing to his own people, but he was rejected by them. From there, he went to the Gentiles. And this is where we start today. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. The priest of Midian is the term in Hebrew, Kohen Midian. As we saw last week, Midian means place of judgment. The term Kohen actually has two meanings. It means priest, but it also means prince. And thus, this person is probably a man similar to Melchizedek, who was seen back in uh, Genesis chapter 14. He would then fulfill the dual role of prince and priest. However, most translators simply call him a priest because uh, he or one of his descendants is noted as performing a priestly function later in Exodus chapter 18, where it says that he took a burnt offering and other sacrifices and offered them to God. This person is likely a descendant of Abraham, who was born to his uh, ancestor Midian, who was born to Abraham's concubine Keturah. This is recorded in Genesis chapter 25, which says Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. As a descendant of Abraham, he may have carried on the traditions of his father and been a priest and a worshiper of the true God. And there's no reason to think otherwise, especially because of his prominence in the life of Moses. God directed Moses' feet to this particular well where a seemingly chance encounter would take place, which is actually not at all by chance. The priest of Midian is said to have seven daughters. Now saying this might seem like an unnecessary addition unless it's trying to show us a picture of something else. If not, it could have left out the number seven and not changed anything at all in the story. 
why are the seven daughters mentioned so specifically and right at his introduction, even before his own name is given? Verse 16 continues, and they came and drew water. The seven daughters are all out together, thus setting up the story in a specific direction. They have stuck together and have come to the well together. The word for drew here is the Hebrew word dalah. It's used only five times in the entire Bible, and three of them are in this chapter right here. Also, it's used once in the Psalms and once in Proverbs. It means to dangle, which then leads to the thought of letting down a bucket, which would be used for drawing out water. And so figuratively, it would mean to deliver. This is uh, its use in the 30th Psalm where it says this, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up, Dalah, and have not let my foes rejoice over me. And the only other time it's used is in Proverbs 20, verse 5. It says, counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will, Dalah, will draw it out. These girls have come to draw out water from the well. It's a scene wholly reminiscent of the accounts of both Rebecca and Rachel, both of who came to wells to draw out water at a time of chance meetings, which brought them to their future husbands. And yet, neither was chance, and both were used, if you saw those sermons, to picture the work of Christ beautifully, just as this passage will as well. Verse 16 continues, And they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. After drawing the water, they used the well to fill the troughs of their father's flock. Another interesting word to look at is the word for troughs. It's the word rahat. It's used twice in Genesis chapter 30 when Jacob peeled rods of trees and placed them in watering troughs for the flocks to mate in front of. All right? All of that pictured, if you saw that or if you are aware of that, it all pictured the work of Christ amazingly. The word is used here again and only one other time in the Bible, which is in the Song of Solomon. In Solomon, Song of Solomon 7 verse 5, it says this, Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. And the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. Okay, that's the word, tresses. It might seem unusual to say that locks of hair are like a gutter used for watering animals. But the idea is that the beloved's hair was flowing down like water, even like ringlets. And who doesn't love the look of, you know, flowing hair on a lovely young lady? There is nothing to suggest that this account is not true either. Some people would say, well, why would girls be out with the flock? Rachel tended Laban's flocks, and even until modern times, a man named Burkhart notes that unmarried daughters of Bedouins have been the ones to tend to the flocks of their family. In this case, they are tending to the flocks of their father. Verse 17, then the shepherds came and drove them away. Adam Clark notes that the verb used here for drove them is the word yagar eshum which in the, is in the masculine gender, and therefore it implies that the shepherds drove away the flocks of the daughters, not the daughters themselves. And this is certainly the case. The daughters took the time to fill the troughs, and once the work was done, the worthless shepherds proceeded to drive the animals out in order for them to benefit from the hard work of those who came before them. Now, what is this telling us? First, it tells us that the priesthood of their father was not held in any esteem by them. If it were, they would have been considerate to the girls. Secondly, it shows a desire to profit off the work of another and to use it for their own benefit by directing it towards their personal flocks. And finally, we will see that this was not at all uncommon. In the coming verse, their father will be surprised at their early return, which means that this was a common occurrence which they had simply put up with and kept silent about in the past. Verse 17 goes on, But Moses stood up and helped them and watered the flocks. And the last time that Moses was mentioned was in the last sermon in the last verse. And it said here, there in verse 15, that he sat down by a well. Now it says he stood up. The account is showing us action on behalf of the daughters and thus for the flock. But again, we need to ask why. Why the descriptive words when it could have simply just said Moses helped them? A picture is being given and we're being asked to reflect on what that picture is. Moses personally intervened and watered their flock. The story is so remarkably similar to what happened in Genesis chapter 29 that it cannot go without note. And that was the account of when Jacob met Rachel. If you remember, there was a boulder on top of a, a spring and he went and moved the boulder. At that time, Jacob pictured Christ and everything he did was pictured with something in the New Testament. Now Moses fills the role of Christ. 
Moses is watering the flock of the priest of Midian, a man who is an upright Gentile seeking the one true God. It should be noted that Moses lived in Egypt. He lived as a royal in the royal and great house of Pharaoh. He left that position and he went to dwell among his own, but his own did not receive him. And so instead he went to the land of the Gentiles. He has found an opportunity now to be a servant and he has prevailed in that task. Now, does that sound like any other figure that you may be aware of? The father has seven daughters who tend to his flock watching over his sheep. They are to pass to them the well's healing waters and to bring out for them the Bible's mysteries deep. But there are other shepherds who would chase the sheep away and disturb their peaceful lives, leading them astray. Yes, the Lord is there to watch with tender care and will carefully water the flock, all who are his own. And when he sees any danger there, to the false shepherds, his anger will be shown. Our second thought today, in drawing he drew, verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, when they came to Reuel, their father. The father's name is finally given. It's Reuel, which means friend of God. As a connection to back to Abraham, we read this in the book of James. <laughs> and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. The name Reuel, or friend of God, ties him back to his great ancestor, Abraham. And he, like Abraham, is living in faith towards this true God, seeking to be his friend. As an added squiggle for your brain here, the fantasy author J.R.R. Tolkien is partially named after this guy right here. His full name is John Ronald Reuel Tolkien. Verse 18 continues. He said, how is it that you have come so soon today? In this statement of surprise, we can see that the actions of the unruly shepherds must have been common. But we can also see that the daughters had kept the matter quiet, not troubling their father with it in the past. They simply allowed others to push them out of the way, and then they went and watered their flocks and headed back home. Verse 19, and they said, an Egyptian, an Egyptian delivered us from the hands of the shepherds. The daughters probably thought that he was an Egyptian, either by his clothes or by his speech, and so the shepherds would have seen this as well. The fact that Moses records their words is a sound indication that he is the true author because someone else would have just called him a stranger or a foreigner. Mm -hmm. There could be several other reasons why he was able to overcome more than one shepherd as well. The first is that he wouldn't be expected to be alone. It would seem improbable that an Egyptian would travel all the way across the desert, right, all that way alone. And so they must have thought, well, somebody must be with him. Another reason is because of the mere boldness of his demeanor. They may have been wary of him. Moses certainly had physical training in his years in Egypt and probably carried himself in a manner which reflected that. So whether for this reason or another reason, he prevailed and he was able to run off the offenders until the flocks were fully tended to. And verse 19 goes on. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. This is another hint that Moses is certainly the author of the account. The fact that he tells that he drew more water shows that the other flocks had already been moved in and had started drinking the water that wasn't for them. In this, the two final uses of the word drew in this chapter are used. In Hebrew, it says, Vegam dalo dala lanu. And also in drawing, he drew for us. It is an expression which shows that he drew abundantly and he drew zealously for them. It's interesting that the man named Moses, which means he who draws out, is shown to do so in the story and to do so in a manner of diligently drawing. The flocks were given in abundance right from the hand of Moses. All of this allowed them to return home earlier than normal. Verse 20. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Reuel asks here what would be a rather obvious question. And where is he? In modern English, it would certainly have been preceded by an elongated, hello, I mean, this guy has put himself out for you and you've done nothing for him in return. Having heard the story that one man defended against a number of shepherds, he knew he would be trustworthy. If he wasn't, what would he have done? He would have chased off the shepherds and then he would have gone about violating the girls. Because they came home unscathed, he knew that he was dealing with a man of integrity. Verse 20 goes on. Why is it that you have left the man? And if a man of integrity, then a man who is not to be left unwelcomed into his own home. As he could figure this out, he was curious as to why the daughters, all seven of them, couldn't. Why would somebody be practically at the door 
and not welcomed into it. His words show that what is right and proper is to open the door and allow him in. Verse 20 continues. Somebody just saw it right there. Call him that he may eat bread. The term that he may eat bread means more than just bread. The intent is that he brought, he be brought in to be entertained and to have a meal. We would say so that he can dine with us. The word bread is substituted for the entire process of dining. He defended them, so now he instructs them to call for him. Where is the man who defends the daughters? Why haven't you brought him home with you? He has passed out the life-healing waters. Surely this one is faithful and true. Bring him into your home. Don't leave him outside the door, because when you invite him in, he will protect you forevermore. And then tell others of the great thing he's done. Don't keep it a secret or hide the word away. Be sure to let the world know of God's glorious son that he is saved and will come again for us someday. Our third thought, a bride and a son. It's verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, then Moses was content to live with the man. It's obvious that Reuel found Moses to be a decent guy, just as he expected after hearing his daughter's words. At some point, he welcomed into his home on a permanent basis. From this, it appears that Israel's deliverer was set on a new and a permanent course that would lead away from them. Would he be the deliverer of these seven daughters only? At this point in time, it must have seemed like that to Israel. It will be a full 40 years until he will return and deliver them. Until that time, he will live among the Gentiles and come to have a Gentile wife. Verse 21 goes on. And he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. It should not go unnoticed that none of the other daughters are mentioned by name. Thus, Zipporah represents all of the daughters who were rescued by Moses. She is given to Moses as a wife. Her name means bird which is from the word sipor. It's a word used to describe birds all the way throughout the Old Testament, even in the Genesis creation account. But in a great parallel to Zipporah becoming Moses' wife and what it pictures, the 84th Psalm shows us that the bird can find a home where the Lord dwells. Here's what it says. Even the sparrow, Zippor, has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars... O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And this isn't unique to the Old Testament. Jesus gives us the same basic idea in the New. Then he said, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a great large tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. The giving of Zipporah to Moses is certainly reminiscent of Laban giving his own daughters to Jacob many years earlier. He stayed and labored, thus receiving his wives. Moses is staying, and he has certainly come into Reuel's family as a helping hand as well. Thus, in turn, he receives a bride. A final point about this verse is that in marrying his daughter, Moses is symbolically adopted into the tribe of Reuel. We see this later in Exodus chapter 4 when Moses receives his call to return to rescue Israel. At that time, he actually asks for permission to fulfill his calling. There in Exodus 4:18, it says this. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. Verse 22. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Time and again, when a child was born in the book of Genesis, it was given as a picture of something in redemptive history or even as a picture of Christ himself. Such is the case here. The name Gershom indicates being a stranger in a foreign land. The first half of the word ger means stranger, and the second half shom comes from either the word sham, which means there, or shem, which means name. And so his name means either stranger there or stranger is his name. However, Abarim notes that the verse merely says that the boy was named such and such because his father was a so-and-so. There is no law that dem demands that the such and such should be etymologically akin to the so-and-so. For all we know, Moses might have been expressing his gladness for having finally settled or grief for having been expelled from his familiar homeland. 
a verb that may have been on Moses' mind is the verb garash, which means to drive or cast out. Thus, his name may also mean exile. While the Lord is building the church, a beautiful bride, he has a son who has gone into exile. And someday soon, the church will be at his side. And once again, on the firstborn son, God will smile. The story is given to show us of God's faithful and tender care to his people, to those who call on him at all times and everywhere. See the marvelous things that God has done for all of us, for any and all who call on him through Jesus. Our fourth thought, so God heard their groaning, which is verses 23 through 25. A sudden, even a dramatic shift now takes place in the story. In the first 22 verses of the chapter, God was never mentioned. In these last three verses, he will be mentioned five times. Where the focus has been on Moses, it will now be on Israel. As Stephen shows us in Acts chapter 7, about 40 years have passed with complete silence. And yet the details of this next year of the life of Moses will be overflowing in the biblical account. As seen in the last sermon, the number 40 is associated with a period of probation, trial, and chastisement, and more specifically, a chastisement of sons and of a covenant people. Understanding this, we can see that Moses' heart was turned towards his people when he was 40 years old, but they rejected his advances, and thus their probation continued for another 40 years. The time is drawing to a close, and Moses' heart will again be turned towards his people. Verse 23, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. The Hebrew says, Vehi beyamim harabim hahem. And it came to pass in time much the same. It's a superlative way of saying that a whole bunch of time passed and things remained unchanged. But suddenly there was a change, which matters to the redemptive narrative. The king of Egypt died. Notice that it didn't say Pharaoh, but the king of Egypt. The position remains, but the ruler changes. Certainly, at a time like this, the people would do what? They'd look for a change in their fortunes as well. Maybe a new policy towards the people would be enacted, and there would be an acceptance of them instead of the years of bondage that they had thus far faced. Verse 23 goes on. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. The bondage didn't change. The slavery continued, and the people groaned in their agony. When they looked for a lessing of their anguish, they were rewarded with only more of the same, and so they cried out. While Moses was dwelling among the Gentiles, the Hebrews toiled in the land of double distress, which is what Egypt means in Hebrew. While he was in the open fields tending to the sheep, their lives were filled with the narrow confines of slavery and bondage. He was free to enjoy contentment of life while they faced nothing more than oppression and trial. But when they cry out to him, there is good news for God's people. He is the covenant-keeping God, and his ears will not forever be shut to the sound of his people's trials. Verse 23 continues, And their cry came up to God because of their bondage. Once again, out of the 20 versions of the Bible that I check for each sermon, and out of the multitude of commentaries that I research for each passage, not even one seized upon the importance of these words. It says in Hebrew, Veta'al shavatam el ha Elohim. And their cry came up to the God. There's a definite article which is not in your Bible. It presupposes that their cries of the past 40 years had not been to the God. Rather, if they cried out, it was to a God or maybe between one another. But the God had been left out of the picture. Now he is petitioned once again. How translators can skip such an important definite article is beyond imagination. A point is being made which is completely lost in the translation. God will allow his people to go their own way and to suffer their own difficulties until they're prepared to call out to him. Such is the wonder of how he deals with his children. When they're ready to reach out to him, he will hear and he will respond. As the Geneva Bible succinctly states it, God humbles his by afflictions that they should cry out to him and receive the fruit of his promise. Verse 24, so God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Here in verse 24 and verse 25 to come, God is going to be mentioned four more times. All four times it will simply say Elohim, God. 
with the matter of the true God being restored to the hearts of his people, God, meaning the same true God, hears and he responds. Their groanings have come up to his ears. And in turn, it is said that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He never forgot, as we tend to think of such a term, but rather in the Bible, when something is forgotten, it is simply pushed out of the mind. When something is remembered, it is called back to the center of attention. As you can see, the remembrance was based on his faithfulness to the covenant and to his covenant people. When God makes a promise, it will never fail. God promised to the patriarchs, and when their descendants return to him, he is determined to return to them. It is the fulfillment of the words he first spoke to Abraham way, 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 way back in Genesis chapter 15, which said this, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The 400 years are ending. The iniquity of the Amorites has now reached its fullness. And the people of Israel at the same time have returned to the God, the true God. It is a confluence of events in redemptive history which actually seems beyond astonishing. And yet it is a confluence of events which has been repeated in their history and which will be repeated again probably in our own lifetimes. Verse 25, our last verse of the day, and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. Albert Barnes notes that the whole history of Israel is foreshadowed in these words. God heard, remembered, looked upon, and knew them. It evidently indicates the beginning of a crisis marked by a personal intervention of God. Absolutely, Albert Barnes. The many times that the word God is mentioned in these three verses hints to us that something great is to be expected in the pages ahead, and we know it is. The great miracles of Egypt are all coming, and it will be that way. Great things are just around the corner for Moses and for the suffering Hebrew people. God heard, remembered, looked upon, and knew his people once again. If you depart from God, not calling on his name, he will let you wander off, though you may suffer harm. But if you return to him, he will do the same and restore you to his favor by his mighty right arm. He will never leave you nor forsake you, but he will allow you to set your own trail. So choose to follow him in all you say and do, and he will guide you. His word will never fail. Stand firm then upon the precious word, and fix your eyes resolutely on the Lord. Our fifth thought today is wonderful pictures. Now that we've looked at the surface of the story, we've looked at the historical and the cultural aspects of what happened, we need to ask ourselves, why? Why is this story here? 40 years of his life and we get seven verses. What is it that God wants us to see? The answer is, as always, Jesus. Here is the light. Time and again, the Bible focuses on receiving a Gentile bride by the man who is the main focus of the narrative. At the same time, the Bible never departs from the concept that God's covenant people, Israel, are still always on his mind, even if they've rejected him. Last week, we saw Moses' rejection by his own and his departure from them while they remained in bondage. It pictures Christ who came to Israel and they rejected him, and so he went to the Gentile people. As Moses went to Midian, the place of judgment, so went Christ to the place of judgment on heaven's throne. Moses sat by a well where water comes forth. Jesus sits at heaven's throne from whence the spirit issues. Along came the seven daughters of the priest of Midian. These seven daughters represent the seven churches of the church age, which are mentioned in the book of Revelation. In fact, the term church in Revelation is a feminine noun. The daughters come and they draw from the well, picturing the churches drawing from the spirit during the church age. The word used to describe their effort was dalah. It figuratively means to deliver. The water is used for the flocks, which in the Bible consistently picture individual groups of people under a shepherd being delivered. The water is brought out and put into the troughs for the flocks, just as the spirit is intended for the people of the church. The same word for troughs 
was used in the story of Jacob in, when he was watering his flock. And there it carried the same pictorial connotation, a source for the people of the church to drink from. However, there was a problem. Other shepherds came and drove the flocks away. It is the false shepherds of the church age, the heretics, the money grubbers, the cult leaders, and those who care only for themselves and the flocks that they have already led astray. But there was good news. Moses was there and he stood up for the daughters. Likewise, Jesus is there and he is ready to stand up for those churches who are faithful to him and his word. Though he is there by the well in the place of judgment, he is not idle. In Revelation 2 verse 1, which is a record of the church age, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And if you know, the golden lampstands are, lampstands are specifically explained as representing individual churches. There he is. He's even now walking among the seven churches, the seven golden lampstands, tending to the flocks of his faithful churches. It's not coincidence that the daughters then tell their father that the man who rescued them was an Egyptian. Though Moses is actually a Hebrew, this was all but hidden from them. And it is the same with the church. For 2,000 years, the fact that Jesus is a Hebrew and a Jew has been almost completely overlooked, both by the Jews and by the church as well. He has almost carried the appearance of a Gentile in the minds of the people. Look at any of those paintings of Jesus and they all look like a Gentile, right? But his true nature did not change because of that. It is a misperception that will be corrected in the story of Moses, and it is a misconception that will be corrected in the minds of the church and in the eyes of the Israeli people. The Christ of the nations is the Messiah of the Jews, and he is a Jew. After this, Reuel asks, why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. The Lord does not force himself into the churches. Rather, he waits for the invitation. Only then will he come and dine with us. In Revelation 3, verse 20, it says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. After this, the next words were said, Then Moses was content to live with the man. This is exactly what Paul says would occur in the Gentile church. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And of course, like many of the major figures used in pictures of redemptive history, a Gentile bride is received. Isaac received Rebekah, Jacob received his beloved Rachel, Joseph received Asenat, and now Moses receives one as well. As only one name of a daughter is given, she is representative of all of the daughters. It is the continuing theme of the Bible. While Israel is in exile for disobedience, God is taking a different course of action. He's not frittering the hours away, but using them wisely until Israel is finally ready to call out to their Messiah. If you go back and read those two quotes about the birds that I read from the 84th Psalm and from Luke chapter 13, you will see how Zipporah, the little bird, pictures those in the church who have found a home among the Lord's temple and in his kingdom. Along with Zipporah, though, there is a son. His name is Gershom. Curiously, Moses has another son. The guy's name is Eliezer, and his birth isn't even recorded. And he won't even be mentioned until Exodus chapter 18, verse 4, kind of as an afterthought. The Bible is focusing on this one son, the firstborn. He is a picture of Israel. In Exodus 4:22, it will say this, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. At the time of his birth, his name is given as Gershom. During the time of Jesus' reign over the church, the son named exile or stranger there is in exactly that state. He is a stranger. He is a stranger there. He is in exile. If you can see it around us, we must, and I mean this sincerely, we must be coming close to the end of the church age right now. The story of Moses' time in Midian until the time that God hears the cries of Israel is almost completely empty with the exception of a few verses and names. The time of calm is coming to an end. Israel is back in the land and God's focus is even right now being redirected to the end times, all of which will be prefigured in the coming chapters of Exodus, filled with plagues and with the glory of God being revealed. 
as the Hebrew of verse 23 said, Vehi beyamim harabim hahem. And it came to pass in time much the same. The years have gone by and things have remained unchanged. The church age has had lots of ups and downs, but it's been the church age. Things have remained much the same. But all of a sudden, these ancient prophecies have been coming to pass before our own eyes and even in our own lifetime. The time is at hand. When Israel's groanings are directed to the God, the true God, meaning the Lord Jesus, he will hear and he will reveal himself to them. We saw it very clearly in the Joseph sermons, and we will see it in the coming chapters of Exodus as well. This is the marvel, and this is the beauty of the age in which we live. But this age will end. The church will be taken to glory in the twinkling of an eye, and the great plagues of Egypt will come upon a global scale. There will be horror, and there will be dread and terrifying choices to make. The Bible says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you've never come to know the salvation which is found in Christ Jesus, I would ask you to not wait one more day. The Bible gives us these ancient stories to show us what is coming and how to avoid it. It is coming individually in each of our deaths, no doubt about that, and it's coming collectively upon an unrepentant world. But God sent his son into the world in order to bring us back to himself. All right, before one or both of those events occur. So let me tell you what you need to know to be a part of his great work of salvation. It goes along with the track that Paul brought up and explained today, the promise of heaven. How can we know for certain that we can go to heaven? People talk about works. What is it that I need to do to be good enough? And Jesus said, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, who are the most righteous people in all of Israel, you will not see the kingdom of God. A different type of righteousness is required. The disciples even asked, well, if these things are true, then how can anybody be saved? And Jesus said that with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Why are they possible? Because God is willing to take his son, his perfect son, and give you his righteousness by calling on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's a doctrine known as imputation. It's saying that I am granting you what he has. And the way you receive that is through faith. There's another doctrine. I don't want to confuse you here, but it's called impartation. Impartation says that you are perfect. I am taking what he has and giving it to you, and you are that. We haven't received that yet. We have imputation. We are as if someday we will be imparted what is now potential will be actual. So we're imputed as righteousness now. We will be imparted his perfection someday. But right now, We have sin in our lives, and that is a wall between us and God. And there is no way for us to take care of that wall without Jesus Christ. It is impossible. Now, I will tell you, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I will tell you that this book here is 100% reliable. It is 100% without error or contradiction, and it is God's word to tell us that he loves us enough to do what he said he did in this word, that he sent that little baby down to us to come and live the perfect life that we cannot live, and then to give that perfect life up on a cross. We talk about the baby of Christmas. Well, that baby of Christmas hung on a cross and died for you and me, and we accept it by faith, and we're reconciled to God the Father, and it can never, never, never be taken away. So if you've never done that, I would ask that you don't leave today without doing so. I have a closing verse from the 18th Psalm. It's the sixth verse. It says, In my distress, think of Israel, I called upon the Lord and cried, cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him even to his ears. Sounds like what we just read, doesn't it? Next week is Exodus 3, 1 through 6. Great stuff, guys. The next couple Exodus sermons, I I tell you, just my hair stands up thinking about them. Standing on holy ground, our sixth Exodus sermon. I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and he's got a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called Watering the Father's Flock. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew from the well's waters. And they filled the troughs for their livestock. Yes, they filled them to water their father's flock. 
Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them all the same and watered their flock that day. When they came to Reuel, their father, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us instead from the hand of the shepherds who treated us in a bad way. And he also enough water for us drew and watered the flock until they were through. So he said to his daughters, yes, to them he pled, and where is he? Why have you, why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may come and with us eat bread. Then Moses was content with the man to live. And to Moses, his daughter Zipporah, he did give. And she bore him a son, we understand. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land and have not been among the people from whom I am bred. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and out they cried. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God, their groaning, he heard. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Yes, his spoken word. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them, as the Bible does tell. Surely it is better at all times to remember God, never departing from his love and grace, than to forget him while in this life we trod, until we come to a difficult or an unhappy place. If we can keep our eyes always focused on Jesus, then whether things are good or difficult, it will be the same. We will know that he is always attentive to us because we have held him fast and to his wondrous name. In this, there will be great rewards when we are ushered into glory and we stand in front of our great and awesome Lord. So let us always hold close to the Bible and the gospel story, keeping hidden in our heart God's precious saving word. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, how wonderful it is to find seven verses which show us 2,000 years of human history so perfectly that when we read them and now that we know what they mean, we can see your hand all over the story. It is absolutely astonishing how you take real people and real events in their lives and just the important information that will tell us about what's going on and you allow us to see these things in your word. How absolutely awesome you are. Thank you for this. Thank you for this treasure, which is the Holy Bible. Thank you for its perfection. Thank you for the fact that we can read it and we can draw from it all the days of our life and never exhaust the beauty that is contained there. What an absolutely astonishing word. How great you are. How absolutely great you are. Thank you for the child of Christmas who came and was laid in a manger, reached up that little wrinkled hand through the dust and the flies in order to, uh, to uh, reach out to the people of the earth that he created and to call them back to himself. Thank you, God. Thank you for the cross that that little baby went to to reconcile us to you. Wonderful God. Perfect Lord. Beautiful Savior. Amen. Paul gives us the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there he says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he would have given thanks over the bread. He would have said these words, Baruch Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. He broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri HaGafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jonah and Jane, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the table that we partake of. And it seems all the more pertinent this time of the year when we think of the baby, we think of the life, we think of the death, and we think of the resurrection. And so we hail Jesus Christ until he comes again. We hail you, we love you, we praise you. All glory to the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.